Turn to Daniel chapter 11. We are getting close to the end of our study in the book of Daniel. Likely only two more. Chapter 11 today. Chapter 12 next week. Uh, Daniel 11 is long, but we're going to read all of it. I'll read verses 1 through 13. If someone else will read 14 to 28. Anyone? Who said that? Okay. Who will read uh, 29 to 39? I'll read it. Okay. And who will read 40 to 45? I will. Okay, great. All right, Daniel 11. Starting in verse 1. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others beside these. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up and her attendants." He who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. His son shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north, and he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail." For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times, many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do so as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his defense. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. 
then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his father nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for a plot shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. And he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the appointed time he will return and come into the town. But this last time it will not turn out the way he did before. For ships of Katim will come against him. Therefore he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice. And they will set up the abomination of desolation. By smooth words he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to many. Yet they will fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. Now when they fall, they will be granted a little help, and many will join with them in hypocrisy. Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end of time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers, for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. But instead he will honor a god excuse me. But instead he will honor a god of fortresses, a god whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. He will take action against the strongest of fortress, fortresses with the help of a foreign god. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause him to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main parts of Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become the become ruler of the treasures of gold and sil of silver, and of all the precious things in Egypt. And the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. And he shall come to his end with none to help him. Everybody got that? 
Um, the book of Daniel takes place during the exile of the people of Israel in Babylon, and uh, that is where God sent them into exile in order to discipline them for their unfaithfulness to Him. They would have been tempted to believe uh, that all was lost in their exile. This was a very dark time. They were separated from the place where God dwelled with them in the temple in Jerusalem, separated from nearly all of the blessings that God had provided for them in the promised land. But throughout this time, God gave strength and He gave hope to His people in order that they would persevere. Uh, Through dreams and visions and prophecies, God was giving insight into the future, uh, some of which would continue to be very difficult for God's people. We see some of that here, but ultimately it was very hopeful. As we've said over and over again, it was a vision of God and of what He would do uh, to impose His will and establish His kingdom among the kingdoms of men. So the hope was drawn from the fact that God was still their God, that He would be faithful even when they hadn't been, and that He would topple their enemies in the end. So this latest vision is given at the beginning of the rule of the Medo-Persian kingdom. Uh, Medo-Persia was the great world power at the time who had just recently come to power after they toppled the former world power, Babylon, which is the world power that brought the Israelites into exile. You remember Nebuchadnezzar and all that. Uh, Many of the visions and dreams in the book have had to do with these consecutive world powers in history, starting with Babylon, going to Medo-Persia, then to Greece, then to Rome, uh, which takes us to the time of Christ. The general message about these world powers is that though they were powerful and though they would have great influence, often for devastation and destruction in the world, especially for God's people, God will be faithful to His people and these kingdoms will fall in the end. Um, We've talked about the fact that that's a lesson for every world power. Your time is limited. And, um, you know, the greatest of the great their day comes to an end. And God would set up His kingdom during the days of those kings. We see that all the way back in Daniel 2. And His kingdom would never fail. God's kingdom stands forever. Uh, This is the hope being offered to God's people in various ways through various visions and prophecies and dreams and everything else um, that God's people would be established, that it would never fade. And we know that this comes to fruition in Christ. Now, Uh, These world powers are mentioned again in chapter 11, at least uh, the last three from Medo-Persia to Greece to Rome. I don't want to go into great detail about that. The the chapter does. Um, We'll talk about that. But we've talked about this a lot already, and so I want to make a few other points. But I will say a few things first, just in terms of history and and what these things are talking about. Verse 2 is most likely referring to Xerxes. He was the fourth king of Persia. He acquired great wealth. And he spent great wealth on building an army to fight against Greece. They were the ones that were coming. They were the ones that threatened their power and authority. Unfortunately, he lost to the Greeks, and the king that arises after him, as verse 3 mentions, is the king of the Greek empire, which is Alexander the Great. Alexander led an incredible global conquest over a very short period of time, and his reign was really very short. Uh, It says in verse 4, that his kingdom was divided and dispersed. 
Two of those four sections of the Greek kingdom were the Seleucids in the north and the Ptolemies. You may have heard of the Ptolemy, Egyptian, uh, P-T-O-L-E-M-Y. But anyway, the, the Seleucids in the north, the Ptolemies in the south. And from verse 5 on, we get a whole lot about the back and forth of, you know, the, the Greek empire has been divided and there's lots of jockeying for position and fighting for land and, and different things. Um, and that takes us from the early 300s BC all the way really up to the time of Christ. The most noteworthy leader in this era is the wicked Antiochus Epiphanes. We talked a lot about him in chapter 8. Um, most commentators agree that from verse 21 to 35, Antiochus Epiphanes is in view here again. Like verse 31, he is the one who profaned the temple. He stopped the sacrifices in the temple in Jerusalem. He set up an image of Zeus there, and they offered pigs on the offer of burnt on the altar of burnt offering, which of course was um, profane, unholy. It is what is known as the abomination of desolation. Um, that you see that language there in verse 31. And then, much like some of the previous passages we've looked at, there's a lot of debate about verses 36 to 45. We see that throughout the book. There's four or five passages where some people think it's in, um, you know, it, it stays with the consecutive history of what we've been looking at. Uh, so many think that that would talk about the Caesars of the Roman Empire. Some thinks it continues continues to talk about Antiochus Epiphanes, and many think the text takes a major transition and is pointing us to someone that's still in the future for us, um, a world ruler still in the future, like an Antichrist figure that will come before before Christ returns. I don't really know what I think. I read various uh, positions, and you know, there are good points on different sides there are weaknesses in my view on different sides but again i'll handle it like i've handled the last ones we tend to get lost in the details and lose the main point of the passage Um, i don't really think it matters all of these things were still future for daniel and when we remember it in that context and remember that the main point of apocalyptic literature is to give a message about god to strengthen his people well, then we can simplify what we're looking for and um, understand. We do get the backdrop, great conflict, warring nations, but there's something that God is giving to Daniel to strengthen his hope for perseverance uh, going forward. The first point I want us to think about is God's providence over all. So, one thing that all Christians agree on in this passage is that there is a sizable chunk of history told in Daniel chapter 11 in an incredible amount of detail before it ever happened. This was told to Daniel, and none of it had happened yet. So I was reading the passage in preparation, and you know I get somewhere around verse 30, and it starts to feel a little long, but then I'm just struck by the fact that uh, none of this has happened. I mean, let us not become so used to the Bible that we cease to be amazed Who does this? No one does this. Only God can do this. Anybody can tell a story after it happens. Um, But telling history before it happens is amazing. It's what we call prophecy. And um, God is giving prophecy. And it's not just that God knew what would happen. It's not just that He peered into the future to see how it all would work out. 
But he's removed and, and ultimately letting it play out as it plays out. That's not the way it happens. It's that God would govern and orchestrate all of these things toward his perfect desired ends. So the theological point that's been, been being hammered home over and over again throughout the book is the sovereignty of God or the absolute power and control of God and the absolute power and control of the one to whom he would give power and dominion and authority, Jesus Christ. Um, we see that especially in chapter 7. So the sovereignty of God, that's really the point of uh, King Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. That was also what Nebuchadnezzar came to conf- confess himself after his second dream and after he was humbled. Remember, he was made to move about like a beast and he kind of lost his sanity there for a while, but he was restored to his sanity and he confesses the truth of the sovereignty of God. That's what Daniel tells King Belshazzar after, remember, the handwriting on the wall in chapter 5 and Belshazzar is um, just a foolish man the, after Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon and he's throwing a party with the, the holy things that were stolen from Jerusalem. And um, Daniel is telling Darius, I mean Belshazzar, uh, that God is sovereign and this is not going to go well for you. And Belshazzar dies immediately after the message. That's the message after uh, that's the message of Darius to the whole world. If you remember in chapter six, when Daniel is uh, protected and freed by God from the lion's den, Darius writes a letter. It says to all the peoples of the earth, and he's just saying, "God is sovereign." Um, chapter seven. That's the passage about Jesus, the Son of Man, who would have dominion and power and authority and so on and so forth. God is the Lord. There is no other. He alone has absolute power and control and authority. He controls everything. That's what we call His sovereignty. God alone is absolutely sovereign. And a truth that is directly connected to God's sovereignty is His providence. So someone help me distinguish between the two. Um, If God's sovereignty is the fact of God's absolute power and control, and it is, who wants to tell us what God's providence is? It's kind of how He orchestrates circumstances to bring about His sovereign will. That's perfect. God's sovereignty is the fact of His absolute power and control. God's providence is the working out of His absolute power and control how he orders things to establish his sovereign will on the earth. So um, God is telling Daniel the future, and not just because he has seen down the corridor of time and he has a little bit of insight, it's because he has ordered all of these things according to his perfect will, he governs history according to his perfect will, and he's going to govern all of these things in order and orchestrate everything toward his perfect will according to His will. Um, you know, it says in Romans 11, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things, which doesn't leave anything out. From Him, to Him, through Him. From, through Him, to Him. Uh, to Him be glory forever. So, through all of God's dealings with Daniel and the people of Israel and their exile, they're being primed to understand this. This is one of the main things that is being communicated over and over and over again. Mind you, in a very difficult place, they're in exile. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. 
God has absolute power and authority. God's providence. God is governing all of these things. He's working out His absolute power and authority in this crazy, in this, among this wickedness. Uh, famous quote, um, R.C. Sproul once said that there's not one maverick molecule in all the universe that's outside of God's control. The emphasis here in Daniel is that there is not one rogue ruler through all of history that is outside of God's control. And not only that, but God is governing all of these wicked rulers' rogue rebellions toward His perfect ends. That's one of the comforts that's being offered to Daniel. All of this is still future for him. All of it, much of it, involves difficulty for the people of God. But God governs sin sinlessly. I don't know where I heard that. It wasn't original to me, but write it down. God governs sin sinlessly. He controls wickedness with perfect wisdom. He works all of it toward His perfect ends. But it's not just that God has sovereign control over all things and is working His providential plan throughout all of the sin and wickedness of history. It's that He's working all things for the good of His people. Um, that's the next point. God's provisions for His people. Look back at verses 31 to 35. 31 to 35. I'll read it again. Forces from him. Uh, this is where we're talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a very wicked ruler um, among that dispersion of the Greek Empire. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering. They shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Remember, that's like the. Zeus and uh, offering pigs on the altar and all that. Um, He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. So this is one of the darkest parts of the vision. Um, The holiest place for the people of God has been defiled in the worst kind of way. But amidst the backdrop of darkness, we see God's provision of faith in order to fight and refining by fire. So, in verse 32, under the influence of Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, some would fall away, but the people who know their God would stand firm and take action. Or we could say they would be given faith to fight. This is where it's helpful. Um, Systematic theology is simply, if we establish one truth over here in this book, we're going to establish the same truth over here in this book. It's, it's seeing how the Bible fits together. There are certain teachings in the Bible and they apply everywhere. So when we get here and we see, oh, <laughs> there's some that are going to stand firm and take action. Is that because they're just a little bit more mature than everybody else or they've been reading their Bible more or, you know, what, what makes them stand firm and take action? No, it's grace. It's a gift. You know, Every good and perfect thing is from above. That includes even our faith. Even the ability to hold fast and stand firm and take action and fight 
God has graciously given it to us. So um, we see the same, you know, this is like uh, Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to work for His good pleasure. Our faith is a gift from God. By His grace, He works in it, in us, all of it. The, the ability to, to will and to work out, you know, standing firm and taking action. And then we work out what He works in. This is one of the most important provisions that God makes for His people, the gift of saving faith by which we stand firm, by which we take action. You know, um, the backdrop in our day is dark as well, and uh, we are utterly dependent on God and His grace to continue to strengthen us and fill us, to give us boldness. You know, it's one of the things that strikes me in the book of Acts is they're not praying for safety as much as they're praying for boldness. But they know, after everything they come up against, they need God. They need His help. They're too weak for this. But God, over and over again, is providing the strength, providing the faith, providing the boldness so that they can stand firm and take action. We need to do the same. Even just to stay put in a crazy culture that's trying to blow us every which way, we need God's strength. We need His help. We need fresh fillings of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, we need to be able to take action in a way that is courageous and winsome and loving and kind and uh, bold. We need God's help. Next, not only does God provide His people with the faith to fight, but also with refining by fire. That's the message of verses 33 to 35. Verse 33, the wise will give understanding to the people, though for a time they will stumble by sword and flame by captivity and plunder. Verse 34, they will be provided for. And verse 35, even so, even the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end. So this is a part of God's sovereign providence that's kind of hard for us to grasp. A part of God's perfect plan includes intense suffering for His people. But the trials and sufferings that God has portioned out for His people according to His perfect plan are a means of grace for us. They are for our refinement. They are for our purification until the end. This is the way our sanctification and growth in godliness works. God loved us when we were unlovely. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He came for us when we had absolutely nothing to offer, and it's not as though we have something to offer Him now. Everything we have is a gift from Him. Um, The only thing we have to offer Him is what He's given us. But during the course of our lives, the Lord cleans us up. He purifies us. We're not there yet, but He refines us. Certainly, we have a role to play in this refinement and purification, uh, and we must take our responsibilities of working out our salvation with great sobriety, with seriousness, but we must never forget that it is God who is the sovereign of salvation. God is the governor of all of this. And one of the chief ways that He governs our growth is through trials and sufferings that He has fashioned for us. Some of these are big, some of these are small. Generally, all of our trials are pretty big to us. 
um, you know, if we're analyzing them on paper, some might look a little bigger than others. But no one likes to suffer, and no one does it very well, and they're all usually pretty big when we're going through them. And 1 Peter 1 talks about the fact that all of this is a gift from God so that our faith would be refined and purified like gold is refined by fire. So this is nice, strong, beautiful gold. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen raw gold, but it's not strong and it's not beautiful. My grandmother has some, and it's just very unimpressive. You know, she keeps it in a little thing with some water in it or something. I forget. It just it has to stay a certain way, but it's kind of brittle. And um, what the way that they strengthen it and and get all of the impurities off of it and refine it and make it look like this is with heat, fire. And then they, it breaks it down so that they can refashion it. And then you get something that's pretty sturdy and not too bad to look at. That's how God strengthens us. You know, we tend to think that if we would just get completely free of that temptation that, that is always knocking on our door then we would really be on our way in the Christian life. You know, if we could just be out from under the smothering nuisance of that thing that's always in our mind defiling us and tempting us, and, and then, then we would be okay. Forgetting that if God wanted us completely free, then we would be completely free of it. It's a part of the refining process. It's a part of the breaking us down and, and fashioning us and strengthening us. Now, don't give in. Fight. You know, by God's grace, stand firm, take action. But we can often get so caught up in the grind of it all and forget to just rest in God's sovereign governing over even our temptations, even all of the things that befall us. Receive them as a trial from the hand of God And then we work them out in submission to Him with fear and trembling. We tend to think that if we could just get that extra time or that extra energy or that extra opportunity, then we would really be able to get on top of what God has called us to do. That's not true. If God wanted us to have that extra time or that extra energy or that extra opportunity, then that's where He would have us. But He has us right where He wants us to be for refinement, which involves heat, which involves being broken down to be strengthened and purified. You know, a lot of struggling moms in this room, struggling dads, husbands or wives, um, struggling with loneliness. Even in a committed relationship, struggling with loneliness. Struggling to make sense out of, what do I do next? Lack of clarity for uh, something that I'm pursuing. We don't need to think that we need to be somewhere else. We need to rest in God's sovereign care for us right where He has us. Embrace where we are before the face of God. We don't need to think that if we could just get that or get this, then we would be better able to pull it off. No, we're better off under the providential provision of our Father in heaven 
even when that provision includes fire, because that's what he wants, to bring the heat, to break us down, to refine us, to strengthen us, to purify us. Um, Whatever your trial, we all have them. Sometimes we feel a bit of rest from them. Sometimes they're laid on thick, and we're not sure that we're really going to be able to navigate it. We are, because He's going to give us His strength to do it. And He's the one that's lovingly caring for us in it. But we have to even thank God for the pain, thank God for the trials, embrace them as from His hand. He loves us, He cares for us, He knows exactly how to get us where He wants us. And we can trust that even now, He's doing that very good work. And the good work will not start when I get that time or energy or opportunity. No, no, no. He's doing the good work right now. Briefly, the last point um, is going to have to be very brief. But um, God's punishment of the wicked, we see it at the second half of verse 45. Whether he was talking about a first century ruler or someone that's still to come in the future, it doesn't matter because the, same, the truth is the same. Uh, this ruler brings devastation. Blood is left in his trail. But... In verse 45, we see that the way that this ends for this wicked ruler is that he comes to an end with none to help him. God is just, and the wicked will be judged in God's time. Sometimes he judges the wicked um, now. Sometimes he defers that judgment until later. Some of you may have followed the the, um, trial and sentencing of Larry Nassar, the... um, gymnastics doctor at Michigan State who molested who knows how many children over lots of years. If you haven't seen the video of Rachel Denhollander, who is the woman that God used to expose him, one of his victims, it's really, really good. Um, You should watch it. But he's been brought to justice He's going to go where he needs to go, which is never to have access to any other human being ever again. Now, I also hope that he would repent. And even he uh, is not so wicked that Christ's blood can't cover him. But it's good that he cannot hurt anyone anymore. But you know, for every Nasser that's caught, how many more of them are out there? How bad is sex trafficking right now? Is it as bad as it's ever been? I mean... Um, you know, you think about the people of Syria and the, their tyrant ruler that's gassing them and even children in their own country. You think about, I had a meeting this week about the people of Sudan and, and the statement has been made that they have a Muslim tyrant that makes ISIS look adolescent and has just been killing his own people for so long and no one's paying attention. What about Pastor Andrew? This is great injustice. What do we do with that? The only hope is Christ. He is the sovereign over all nations. He was brought to justice in the place of sinners. And He will bring to justice the unrepentant wicked in His time. Sometime that's now. Sometimes that's later. We can pray for it now. We can hope for it now. But there are times when God will ask us to defer to later. Um, there's more I could say but I won't let's pray
Father, we uh, thank you for your word, which is it is convicting, it is comforting. And we need to be reminded often. These themes are prevalent throughout the book that you've given us, and we thank you that they are, because, Lord, um, we can so easily forget. Our trials often overwhelm us. It's hard to navigate and it's hard to tell up from down. And we thank you for giving us our bearings once again. I pray that you would minister this to everyone's heart and mind and soul and that you would, uh, by your grace, give us the strength to stand firm and take action. Help us to rest in your provisions that you've made for us, Lord. Help us to trust that you will give us uh, what we need when we need it. We recognize that we cannot do what you've called us to do in our own strength. But we thank you, Lord, um, that your grace is sufficient and your power is made perfect in our weakness. We trust you that all will be right in the end. And uh, Lord, we thank you for glimpses of that as in the uh, sentencing of Larry Nasser. We would pray for His salvation. That You would open His eyes to the wickedness that He's done and that He would not grovel in the guilt but would be able to repent of His sin and lay hold of the treasures of Your grace and mercy that we have. We pray for all of His victims that You would give them healing in Christ. And Lord, um, we recognize that all of us are wicked in our sin. All of us will stand before You. To stand before you apart from Christ is a terrible, terrible predicament. We thank you for your grace. We come in his name. Um, We thank you for your love for us. We pray that you would use us to get the message of your justice and your grace and mercy uh, to our neighbors, uh, to the city, and to the ends of the earth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Anybody have any thoughts or questions? We can go there for a second. Yeah. Yeah. And it's important we do ask for further provision, right? I mean that's that's really what prayer is. I mean a lot of what prayer is. We we have adoration to God, we confess our sins to God, but we're asking for further provision, whether that's for us or someone else. I mean, making petitions, but we don't need to forget that He has already made provisions um, and to rest in the provisions that He's made and to know that His provisions will be sufficient. Um, It doesn't mean we understand it. I don't understand it. I don't even understand all this passage. I don't even know who that's talking about there at the end, you know, but, but we see enough of who He is to know, and that's really what Daniel was going. You think Daniel, we understand a lot more of this than Daniel did. I mean, but he understood that God was with him and he understood that God was going to fight for him and God was going to provide for him and that the, the wicked would be brought to justice in the end and he could rest in God. And that's really the message for us. Good word. All right. Have a good day.